I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 22nd, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk about how to design, plan for, and build more resilient cities in the light of climate change with Patti Romero Lanqueo from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. We'll begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Forests are important to us. They release oxygen, provide lumber, and are just pretty. Maybe less appreciated is the fact that they store carbon by pulling CO2 from the atmosphere and convert, or fix it, into complex molecules. Deforestation and climate change are well-known factors reducing tropical carbon storage. Researchers recently reported a novel way in which tropical carbon sequestration has been impacted. Loss of seed-dispersing animals on which big trees, which store a lot of carbon, depend for reproduction. These are species like fruit bats and rodents, which are adapted for eating large fruits and thus carrying the seeds to distant sites for germination. Many of the fruit-dispersing birds, bats, and mammals are threatened by hunting, illegal trade, and habitat loss. The research group from Brazil, Finland, and Spain used a large ecological data set on tropical tree species to estimate the loss of carbon storage capacity. Computer simulations showed that local extinction of seed dispersers can significantly reduce carbon storage. Although intergovernmental policies to reduce carbon emissions and reforestation programs have been mostly focused on deforestation, these results show that the role of animals and ecological interactions also affect tropical forest carbon storage. The work was reported last week in the journal Science Advances. As we age, if we're lucky enough to keep our hair, its color will slowly fade and then turn grey. But not so for our feathered friends. Scientists have found that it isn't dyes or pigments that give birds their often intensely coloured plumage. Instead, the birds control a nanostructure of their feathers that in turn affects the colour or the light that we see reflected from the feather. A jay's feather can go from ultraviolet in colour through to blue and into white, and these colours don't fade over time. For humans who rely on pigments to colour their hair, it's a different story, sadly. The researchers from the University of Sheffield in England believe that the discovery may lead to synthetic colours for paints or clothes that won't fade like dyes or pigments. The research was published yesterday in Nature Scientific Reports. If you have dared to jump or even dip your toes into an alpine lake while backpacking in the Rocky Mountain National Park or High Sierras, you might understandably think that they are mighty cold, too cold. But according to a new study, high-altitude lakes are warming, and they're warming as fast as lakes at lower elevations. And all the lakes studied are warming faster than oceans. This suggests that warming lakes could threaten ecosystems and freshwater supplies, according to the researchers. In fact, algae blooms will increase by 20% over the next century, according to the study. 
Large amounts of algae, called harmful algal blooms, can suck oxygen out of a lake or water body and trigger fish die-offs and a ripple effect on predators that eat those fish. In their study, the researchers, including ecologist Jill Barron at Colorado State University, gathered data from 235 lakes. Two of the lakes are in Rocky Mountain National Park. The data show that air and lake temperatures in the summer have been rising over the past decade. What particularly surprised the researchers was that the rates of surface water warming depended on combinations of climate and local characteristics, not just the location of the lakes. The study was published last week in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. Sea level rise, severe storms, heat waves. These are just a few of the challenges cities might be facing as the climate changes in the next few decades. So how should cities adapt to cope with such events? And with urban developments being one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, what can cities do to mitigate their impact? These are questions that the Urban Climate Change Research Network has set out to address in its second assessment report on climate change in cities. The report gives the expected climate projections for 100 cities, along with guidance on increasing resilience and reducing impact. The network released its summary for city leaders at the Paris talks only three weeks ago, and Boulder's Patti Romero Lanqueo was there to promote the report. Patti is a research scientist at the National Centre for Atmospheric Research, who, investi- who investigates the interactions between urban development and global climate change. She's here to talk with us today about the outlook for cities and the report. She was a co-editor of the report and coordinating lead author of the chapter on governance. Welcome, Patti. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. Thank you. So where did the idea really come from for this report? Uh, Cynthia Rosensby uh, uh, and I were already involved in doing a report for the UN Habitat. Uh, I led uh, three of the chapters, and we realized that only having these international bodies involved in doing a report was not enough. We needed to have scientists from different disciplines and also communities of practice contributing to a report on cities and climate change. And the idea of having this second report was to involve them, not only to, and, and to get their questions, their concerns, to bear on what we wanted to do with the report. Right. And there's a lot of information in this report. I mean, how did you really gather all that? 100 cities, climate projections for 100 cities? Yeah, the, I, I can tell you that it is easier to deal with downscaling, downscale models of what heat waves and sea level rise are already looking like. It is easier than to understand what populations are more sensitive or else more able to respond to floods and heat waves and sea level rise. So, yeah, it was hard to put together this information. It's even harder to deal with the fact that humans are harder to evaluate. You know, 
it is harder to understand why is it that we have preference for cars, big cars, instead of public transportation. So, right. yeah, it was hard to do, to deal with the climate component of the report, and it is more exciting because it's harder to deal with the human component of it. Right, and of course, one of the big things about climate change is where humans and science interact really isn't it yeah and so what was your main goal setting out in writing this report what did you really why why did you feel it was really important to have a report like this? well it's important because for six or seven years i have been telling that cities are the source of the problem meaning it is there where most of the energy is used that is driving climate change there are also hotspots of vulnerability. They concentrate infrastructures, assets, populations. And, st- and at the same time, they are the source of the solution. It is in cities where you see universities, where you see innovations, experiments, grassroots movements that are helping us move away from our current patterns of production and consumption. So uh, convinced of that, we decided that it was important to involve communities of practice and decision makers in this report because without the buy-in of the ones that will undertake the actions needed you you can you don't have anything to deal with you know so yes we have a lot of science involved and yes at the same time we have the ones that will be moving this forward involved in this report so you've worked very closely with policymakers, but also with the people who really will put the policies into practice. Is that correct? Exactly. That's exactly yeah. the idea. Yeah. Um, without involvement of decision makers and stakeholders, it will be hard to undertake the actions. And they, they, they really are, they really entail deep transformations in the way we uh, commute, the way we eat, the way we... Um, uh, hit our houses. So we decided that it was important to involve them in this report as well. And this wasn't just cities in the United States, was it? This was cities all around the world. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have more than 100 cities uh, involved in this report. And yes, they are. Mo- uh, th- that's a challenge we had been faced with, that usually many studies focus on Europe and the US. And with this report, we were aimed and also with other activities we have been promoting, research activities, we are able to involve cities from Latin America. You can hear I'm from Latin America. Cities from Europe, from Asia, from Asia, South Asia, China, India. Particularly China and India are growing on steroids, as I say, and we need to get them involved also in the steps needed to reduce our footprint, our carbon footprint on earth yeah and some of these cities are potentially very vulnerable i mean that's what's been identified isn't it some of the coastal indian cities is that yes. correct and yes I, I i i need to insist that some coastal many coastal areas are vulnerable mountain urbanizing regions are also vulnerable desert areas are also vulnerable and why in 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 phoenix and in tucson uh, citizens are vulnerable because they depend on water that is scarce and that will be affected by climate change. Uh, on the front range where we live, floods, water scarcity and uh, droughts are a key issue that climate change is expected to aggravate. So 
the bottom line is no one is spared from this problem. Therefore, we all need to be involved in the solutions to this problem. Right. And we can make a difference even on an individual level, is that correct? We need to make a difference at all levels. And yes, at the, 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 the message here is that we have a closing window of opportunity to change our lifestyles. And we can do it, but we also need the action of decision makers and of corporations. Just imagine what uh, the petroleum industry could do can affect 40% of and even more of our emissions. So they also need to be at the table, engaged in this conversation. And yes, we, uh, housewives, teachers, parents, have a lot to do to solve this problem. And are city leaders listening? Are they taking on board this report? I know you went to the Paris talks. What was the kind of reception that... City leaders are responding, and interestingly, in the studies we have done, we have found that many city leaders who are responding are doing it because of political reasons. Some of them want to be presidents. You know, they they have political ambitions, and they want to show that they are leaders. And I think we need to use that opportunity. Other city leaders are really just engaged in affecting change, and we need to take all the all the opportunities we have to affect change need to be used. And yes, uh, we got many city leaders uh, meeting for one day, not only to discuss this report, but also to agree on... Com- they, they committed themselves to reduce their emissions. They have targets. Because if you consider, yes, it is good that we have all the countries pledging to reduce their emissions. But that action at the national level is not enough if city leaders do not join forces with decision makers that were in Paris, if corporations don't join forces. Just so it was nice to see uh, Al Gore, uh, Bill Gates, all these leaders also saying we need to go for it. Yeah. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're talking to Patty Romero Lanqueo from the National Centre for Atmospheric Research about how cities can prepare for climate change and reduce their carbon footprint. So you say some of the, the changes that nearly all cities will see um, and the implications of those changes. Can you just talk us through some of the changes we might see, some of the implications? Right. Uh, yes, one of those has to do with urbanization itself, and that is the urban heat islands. Land use changes induced by urbanization, by urban growth, uh, uh, result in temperatures within cities that are higher. The average temperatures are higher than the ones in the surrounding areas. These uh, urban heat islands will be increased by climate change and they will interact with air pollution. Both, and we have been already doing some studies, have implications for the health of populations. And this is something we need to care about because who would like to be unhealthy, right? Another beautiful example is floods. The odds of us getting floods like the one we experienced in September Uh, 2013, the odds are increasing. The chances that we get those are increasing. 
And, and the interesting and, and challenging thing is that, for instance, sea level rise, people would say, oh, well, what is the meaning of three centimeters or millimeters? Well, sea level rise by itself is perhaps already a problem, but when it comes together with storm surges induced by, by heavy precipitation, by hurricanes, then you have three, four stresses that city leaders and that populations need to deal with. So the interesting thing about climate change, the challenging thing is that it is carrying risks that we don't want to be affected by, right? We don't want to have all these problems. And therefore, I think we have a, a stake in the problem. We as urbanitas, we have a stake in the problem and we have a beautiful opportunity to change the way we live and by so doing to address and mitigate the risks climate change is expected to aggravate. So really, what can city managers be doing? Say like you've got a city that's getting warmer, getting dirtier, getting more potential for floods. What sort of things can they be doing to both adapt for that which it looks like it's going to be happening in certain places, and also mitigate their impact. Right. Uh, but let, let's move just now to Boulder, right? We are yeah. in, in, in urban areas in, in, in Boulder County. A, a huge big step will be to have control over the electricity we produce, right? I don't know what will happen with Excel and the city of Boulder, what I know for sure, and this is not up to me to decide, right? But for sure, if they are able to make decisions that move us, move us away from uh, relying on car, uh, coal to produce electricity and using more uh, solar and more wind, then they will affect a big change in our emissions. They will, create, they will have a big impact on our emissions. Another key element is urban form and the design of our buildings. If we are able to insulate our windows, our doors, uh, if we are able, and this is a beautiful example too, if we are able to change, to put solar panels on our roofs, and I want to insist, and to have control as citizens of our roofs. We don't want corporations controlling that. We want us being owners of our roofs and the electricity they produce. If we come together with the city officials and also with firms that want to provide those solar panels, we will have decentralized systems and we will have a say on how we want to produce our electricity. Those are big, those, those will have big impacts on the way we uh, create energy. And there are other uh, actions we can't uh, engage in, but these can make a huge difference. You know, like the impact can yeah. be 40 to 50 percent, while just insulating our little houses, oh, we'll have 10 percent. So I think that we have a beautiful opportunity in Boulder to address this. Another important thing is that the city of Boulder and the uh, Boulder County, after the floods, has realized that we need to create green ways that help communities ride their bikes and at the same time can be used to uh, uh, mitigate the impacts of floods. So yeah. you can see that's a win-win, yeah. right? People can transit, they lose weight, right? Yeah. They are healthier, they don't emit so much carbon, and 
these areas can be used to mitigate floods yeah. that we will be getting because no matter what we do now, and we need to do a lot, the impacts of our actions will be felt in 50 years. And that's something we learned and we agreed on. We concluded in our IPCC yeah. report as well. Yeah. So we have to move fast oh, as well. So really. fast. I yeah. mean, I came so happy from Paris. I am so glad everyone is finally getting started. We need to move forward. This is just the starting point of a long, exciting journey. Right. I just wanted to quickly touch on one thing. You addressed equity in this report, the vulnerable populations, and you saw this as maybe a win-win opportunity to help make life better for this population while also mitigating climate change. Can you just say a couple of words on that, please? Yeah, um, it's, it's known by many, and if not, I will remind everyone that the poor, the vulnerable, meaning uh, people in sub-Sahara, poor populations in the U.S., poor populations in Latin America, are not responsible for the emissions and for the climate impacts we are already experiencing. It is m middle to upper class populations of all over the world who are responsible for it. And that means that we need to create some mechanisms to compensate these poor populations, right? I, I think that if we are to build houses, if we are, in the case of the U.S., to upgrade our infrastructures, we need to do it in such a way that we um, give housing to people, we give livelihood options to people, particularly these poor populations. I also want to insist there is indeed an environmental justice problem and, and, and an issue uh, with climate change, but we middle to upper class populations should not think that we are spared from the impacts of climate change. We are getting older, meaning heat waves will kill us, right, or will affect us greatly. Um, we saw it during the floods, right? Wealthy areas were also affected, right? Of course, we wealthy air populations have the means, the assets, the insurance that will help us uh, cope with this. So this could really address things on all angles in the sense that we can help treat the whole population more fairly. We can mitigate climate impacts and we can basically, it's a win-win, it's better for our health. It's better all round. Do you hope, is this how you hope that this report will right. be used? I hope that, and I, I want us to remember that this is like the vaccinations. If we vaccinate, meaning if we give people options and assets to work, to make their living, and we cover 80% of the population, if we get 10% that are not able to cope, we have a safety net, right, that protects them. So we need to have that vision in mind. We've been talking to Patty Romero-Lanqueo from the National Centre for Atmospheric Research about how cities can prepare for climate change and reduce their own carbon footprint. Thank you, Patty, for joining us this morning. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, 
that's all for this edition of Hell on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by myself, Joel Parker. Headline contributions by Susan Moran, Beth Bennett, and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Loving Spoonful. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Joel Parker.